You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to the fourth episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich, and here with me, as always, is Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Previously on the show, we talked about the tense, heated debate surrounding the passage of the Missouri Compromise in 1820, and we highlighted Henry Clay's key role in finding a solution to the crisis. But, although the Missouri Compromise diffused the immediate crisis, and prevented disunion in the short term, it did nothing to solve the larger issue, which was the question of Congress's right to legislate on slavery and prohibit its further expansion into Western territories. However, slavery wasn't the only issue that imperiled the state of the Union during this period. This next crisis we'll look at started to build toward a boiling point in the late 1820s, but actually had its roots in laws passed about 15 years earlier. You see, after the War of 1812, the increasing industrialization of the North meant that region was soon calling for a protective tariff to give American products a leg up on foreign competition. Before that time, tariffs had been enacted solely to raise revenue, but in 1816, Congress passed the first protective tariff. The new law levied a stiff duty on manufactured goods imported from abroad. Well, Southerners were none too happy over this development. They said it favored northern industry at the expense of southern interests. The economy of the South relied on export trade and crops such as rice, indigo, and, of course, king cotton. Southerners protested that while they sold their agricultural products worldwide on an open market, the protective tariff meant that they would now be forced to buy essential manufactured goods on a closed market in the north. So Southerners denounced the tariff, saying it obviously benefited one section of the country while penalizing another, and to them, this was not only unfair, but unconstitutional. Things started to heat up in connection with the presidential campaign of 1828 that pitted Andrew Jackson against John Quincy Adams. Andrew Jackson's supporters in Congress decided to enact a new tariff that would win old hickory votes in the middle and western states but the new tariff imperiled King Cotton because it threatened to drive the price of imported cloth and clothing beyond the reach of most Americans, and this, in turn, would oblige Britain and France to drastically cut the amount of cotton they imported from the South. When the tariff of 1828 passed despite their protest, Southerners were outraged and dubbed the legislation the Tariff of Abominations. Well, Andrew Jackson won the election, and a fellow named John C. Calhoun of South Carolina was his vice president. But Calhoun then spent two years fighting the tariff, mostly through intermediaries and allies in Congress. 
Calhoun argued that any state, such as South Carolina, for example, had the right to unilaterally judge as unconstitutional any act of the federal government and pronounce that act null and void. John Caldwell Calhoun, born in 1782, was a rather stern-looking gentleman with a head of hair that, in the pre-Civil War era, was probably only surpassed in wild grandeur by Andrew Jackson's. We'll post a photo or two on the website so you can see for yourself. Anyway, over a political career that spanned 40 years, Calhoun would represent South Carolina in both the House and Senate, serve as vice president under both John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, be James Monroe's Secretary of War, and also John Tyler's Secretary of State. And until his death in 1850, Calhoun would be the South's chief spokesman on nullification and states' rights. But to get back to the Tariff of Abominations, in January 1830, Robert Hayne of South Carolina, whom everyone understood was speaking for Vice President Calhoun, rose from his seat in the Senate and launched a fierce defense of South Carolina's state sovereignty. Hayne's impressive defense encompassed not only states' rights, but also the doctrine of nullification. However, Hayne's argument was eclipsed by Daniel Webster's famous reply. Webster, born in 1782, was senator from Massachusetts and the pre-Civil War era's foremost advocate for American nationalism. In his reply to Hayne, Webster eloquently shot down the idea that any state could cherry-pick the federal laws it chose to obey or ignore. Webster proclaimed, quote, I go for the Constitution as it is, and for the Union as it is. It is, sir, the people's Constitution, the people's government, made for the people, made by the people, and answerable to the people, end quote. And then Webster famously summed up his position by declaring, Liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable. But Calhoun, hoping to play upon the fact that President Jackson had been born in South Carolina and that Jackson would surely recognize that the tariff was a foolish, divisive policy, Calhoun invited Jackson to a party in April 1830 celebrating Thomas Jefferson's birthday. Now Calhoun and his allies had prepared a plan to turn the after-dinner toast into a carefully orchestrated acclamation of states' rights. And so, beginning with Calhoun, the toast went around the table, each praising states' rights, and then it was President Jackson's turn. Andrew Jackson rose to his feet, looked straight at John C. Calhoun, and proposed, Our federal union, it must be preserved. Jackson then held his glass in the air indicating he meant for the toast to be drunk standing. As everyone rose to their feet, a deeply shaken Calhoun managed to stammer, The Union, next to our liberty, most dear. But his response was a feeble one, and everyone present realized that they had badly underestimated Jackson's loyalty to the Union. In an attempt to resolve the crisis, Congress passed the Tariff of 1832, but it did not lower rates enough to satisfy the Southern Fire Eaters, so the governor of South Carolina called a special session of the state legislature, which in turn ordered the election of a special convention to meet and address the matter of the tariff. The convention assembled on November 19, 1832, and five days later, on the 24th, passed an ordinance of nullification. 
the ordinance declared the federal tariffs of 1828 and 1832 null and void and not to be collected in South Carolina after February 1, 1833. The convention warned that if the federal government interfered, the state would secede from the Union and, quote, forthwith proceed to organize a separate government, end quote. Well, President Jackson then stepped in and issued a proclamation on December 10th in which he said that nullification was, quote, incompatible with the existence of the Union. The Constitution forms a government, not a league, end quote. Jackson went on to further reign on South Carolina's parade by declaring, quote, to say that any state may at pleasure secede from the Union is to say that the United States is not a nation, end quote. Jackson's proclamation was greeted with scorn in South Carolina, but the president was ready to back up his words with force. In January 1833, Jackson asked Congress to pass the Force Act, giving him standing authority to use the Army and Navy to put down armed rebellion. Even though he prepared for civil war, Jackson showed admirable restraint and had handled the situation so that South Carolina would have to become the aggressor in order to stop collection of the federal tariff. But Jackson wished to avoid bloodshed, and so he also worked to do something about lowering the tariff. He directed his Secretary of the Treasury to prepare a bill that could be quickly steered through both houses of Congress. However, Northerners quickly and loudly protested the provisions of the new bill because to them it went too far in removing protection for their region's industries and because on principle they opposed any concession to the rebellious nullifiers in South Carolina. But then, once again, Henry Clay of Kentucky stepped in and attempted to broker a compromise. South Carolina, though, wasn't going to back down. In an impressive show of stubborn resolve, the state's fire-eaters worked out an arrangement whereby Senator Hayne would resign his seat in Congress and replace James Hamilton, Jr. as governor of South Carolina. At the same time, Calhoun would resign as vice president and immediately be appointed to take Hayne's place in the Senate. In this way, Calhoun could use the floor of the Senate to stand up for nullification and champion states' rights. Well, this Chinese fire drill duly took place, and the newly installed Senator Calhoun wasted no time in launching passionate and bitter attacks against Jackson, saying the president seemed determined to drench South Carolina in blood. Meanwhile, Henry Clay still labored behind the scenes to put together a workable compromise, even as Daniel Webster and John C. Calhoun waged an epic verbal battle in the Senate. It was the eloquent Webster upholding the integrity of the Union and the fiery Calhoun defending states' rights. But tirelessly working with both factions, Clay was finally successful in devising a plan that both northern and southern congressional delegations agreed to, and so on February 12, 1833, he rose in the Senate and presented his plan. As soon as Clay finished speaking, Calhoun rose to his feet and voiced his support of the bill. Congress breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that the crisis was over and that bloodshed and civil war had been avoided. On February 26th, the House passed Clay's Compromise Bill, and then on March 1st, the Senate approved it. The Force Bill also passed at the same time, and so on March 2nd, President Jackson signed both. But in a pointed display, he started with the Force Bill, then he signed the Compromise Tariff of 1833, and it became law. 
Well, South Carolina straightaway repealed its ordinance of nullification, but then in a rather pathetic gesture of defiance, it nullified the force bill. Henry Clay said this feeble protest should be laughed at rather than taken seriously. While Clay was rightly applauded for defusing the crisis and averting civil war, Andrew Jackson realized that compromise had once again only been a short-term solution, and that for America, somewhere down the road, there was a deeper issue still to be resolved. Jackson said, The tariff was only the pretext, and disunion and Southern Confederacy the real object. And then he added, The next pretext will be the Negro or slavery question. Jackson was right to feel uneasy over the entire episode, for the fact remained that Calhoun and his fellow South Carolina fire eaters had audaciously preached rebellion and had brought the nation to within a hair's breadth of civil war. They eventually accepted Clay's compromise only when no other southern states rose up to join them in their stand against the federal government. Calhoun and his allies did not, however, renounce the principle of nullification or the right of secession. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Andrew Jackson was right on the money when he predicted that the next critical juncture in America's future would center on, as he said, the Negro or slavery question. And as with the bitter debate over the Missouri Compromise, it was the issue of Western expansion, coupled with the slavery question, that would spark the next major crisis. The dramatic events of the 1840s would make it much more difficult for the politicians to sidestep the issue of slavery. Those dramatic events revolved around the idea of manifest destiny. With manifest destiny came a renewed sectional conflict and a battle over the spread of slavery. The idea of Manifest Destiny was summed up in an essay in 1845 by John L. O'Sullivan, in which he argued that American claims for Western territory was, quote, 
by the right of our manifest destiny to overspread and to possess the whole continent which providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federative self-government entrusted to us, end quote. But the dream of this idealized American expansion ran up against two very real roadblocks. First, out in the Pacific Northwest, there was an area that both the United States and Great Britain awkwardly jointly occupied. This was because the two countries hadn't been able to agree on the northern boundary of the U.S. slash southern boundary of Canada in that region. But now, with Manifest Destiny, the United States decided it wanted it all, the entire Pacific Northwest, right up to the 5440 parallel, which was the border of Russian Alaska. Next, the second roadblock to Manifest Destiny was Mexico. After freeing itself from Spanish rule, Mexico had encouraged Americans to settle in the large, barren stretches of Tejas, its northeastern province. And so many slave-owning Southerners from Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee took advantage of this opportunity and settled in Texas. Most of these settlers actually expected that Texas would be annexed by the United States in the near future. But as these willful American settlers moved in, 30,000 of them by 1835, Mexican encouragement soon enough turned to uneasiness and then to outright resentment. This was especially true after Mexico abolished slavery. By 1835, Mexican hostility led to an uprising in Texas. The rebellious Texians, as they called themselves, lost their famous fight at the Alamo, but they won their independence the next year and established the Republic of Texas. The Texans wanted to become a part of the United States as soon as possible. President Martin Van Buren, Andrew Jackson's anointed successor, wasn't keen on adding another slave state to the Union. So the Texans unwillingly remained an independent republic. But then John Tyler unexpectedly became president in 1841 after William Henry Harrison became the first president to die in office succumbing to complications from pneumonia just a month after his inauguration. And so even though Mexico stubbornly maintained its claim over what it considered a rebellious province, Tyler made the annexation of Texas a goal of his administration. In late 1844, Tyler shepherded a joint resolution through Congress, and Texas was admitted to the Union as a slave state. The annexation bill was passed on March 1, 1845, just a few days before the new president, James K. Polk, took office. On entering office, Polk found that Britain would negotiate with the U.S. over the Oregon Territory, but Mexico refused to back down over Texas. And so tensions ran high along America's southern border. Manifest destiny beckoned, and thus the stage was set for war with Mexico. And that seems like a good place to start to wrap up things for this episode. So we'll start back up next time with the outbreak of war with Mexico in 1846. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And for this episode, our recommendation is Disunion, The Coming of the American Civil War, 1789-1859, to by Elizabeth R. Varon. The Journal of Southern History said this book is, quote, a solid contribution to antebellum political history that offers a new and interesting viewpoint on sectionalism.
end quote. And then a review in North and South magazine said, quote, Barron's success in setting her analysis of disunion rhetoric against a comprehensive historiographical backdrop is exceptional. Meticulously researched and beautifully assembled, Disunion will become the standard text for students and scholars interested in this tumultuous chapter in American history. End quote. So there you go. Whether you're a student or a scholar of the Civil War era, or simply an innocent bystander who wandered into our podcast, this book's for you. You can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. If you listen to the podcast through iTunes, please consider taking a second to give us a five-star rating. And then if you also subscribe to the show, which of course is free, it means you'll get the newest episode of the show as soon as it's available. And both of those things will help other people find the podcast on iTunes. Finally, we want to thank the good people at Spiritwood Music for permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, at the beginning and end of the podcast. That song is on their album, Cabin Fever. You can find the Spiritwood Music Northwoods Ensemble on iTunes or at Amazon, or you can go directly to their website, www.spiritwoodmusic.com. We also want to thank all of you for listening to the Civil War 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.